Kinesis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an associate professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ilaglobalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Jonathan, this is how we're going to start this this episode. Top three concerts you've attended. Top three concerts you've ever attended. Top three concerts. Okay. So I, I think Wings Over America, definitely. Seeing Paul McCartney live, that was cool. The year after Led Zeppelin, getting there at 11 in the morning and being in this big, long party lineup all day and then the big rush in and getting 50 feet from the stage with... 40-foot-high stacks of speakers watching uh, the pant legs move and a three-and-a-half-hour concert. Uh, but the one that has to take the cake was in this little Commodore ballroom in Vancouver with a sprung dance floor. Okay. Bo, Bo Diddley is the opening act, 1979, in The Talking Heads. Oh. And they played, and they played, and they played. It was their second album was out, and... They did their two encores and they went off and they turned the house lights on and nobody would leave. <laughs> 20 minutes later, they had to come back and play for another 20 minutes. <laughs> I love the song Cross-Eyed and Painless. I love that song. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that Those are some Led Zeppelin, Paul McCartney, Talking Heads. That's pretty darn good. I remember seeing Chicago with as a horn band and being able to dance in the auditorium and yeah, Bob Seger is an opening act for Blue Oyster Cult. Who was the opening act? I'm sorry. Bob Seger. Oh, wow. Hart played our high school dance. See? You're growing up in Seattle at this point, right? No, Vancouver. And we drive to Seattle for concerts, yeah. Nice. Oh, Vancouver is a beautiful city. Yeah. But we have business to do here. We do. Listeners want to hear about leadership, and they want to hear about you, and they want to hear about your work. And everybody, I've been kind of going back and forth a little bit with Jonathan Reams. And Jonathan is at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, where he teaches their courses in leadership development, coaching, counseling. And he is the editor-in-chief of the Integral Review, a transdisciplinary and transcultural journal for new thought Praxis and research. He did his PhD in Spokane, Washington at Gonzaga, a fellow Jesuit institution, 
And I am so excited for this conversation, Jonathan. I have been having a conversation with a number of editors from different journals from around the world. And the opportunity to have this this conversation with you and specifically on the topic of integral leadership. I know that that's an area that you've written in, and I think that's not a topic that I've explored on this podcast. So maybe share a little bit more about you. I've kind of dipped my toes. We know about your musical history (laughs) and uh, your professional life, but maybe there's some gaps you want to fill in about you. And then let's talk about integral leadership. Okay. So you want the the two-minute bio. Born in uh, Moscow, Idaho, moved to Canada with my parents when I was about five, grew up outside of Vancouver, BC, and we had 5,000 pigs. Wow. So I know how to do all sorts of things around animals. Uh, We had cattle and sheep too and stuff like that. But I was a college dropout. Dropped out of uh, second year of University of British Columbia studying physics and philosophy when I was 18 because I was bored with logical positivism. Hmm. There was something just so deadening about that. And I took a class on logic at first and I just walked in and walked out. And the physics I liked and I kind of followed up in indirect ways. But I really realized I wanted something more around consciousness development. I wanted inner work and personal growth. This is what I was really looking for. And so, you know, I ended up taking up a spiritual practice and delivering pizzas and working at a sawmill and, you know, then managing some farms over the years, but eventually went back to school, did correspondence, got tired of the correspondence, and this is how I then ended up at Gonzaga. So I was living north of there, a couple hundred miles in a little town in British Columbia called Nelson, BC. If you've seen the Steve Martin film Roxanne, that was filmed there when I moved there. Okay. Beautiful little mountain town, you know, where Esquire magazine called it the next New Age Nirvana. Beautiful place. So I built a log house on the side of the mountain there, you know, raised a family, did all that kind of stuff, but started commuting weekly to Gonzaga. And how I got into leadership was really this serendipity kind of in a way. I thought I was going to be a high school teacher of history or, you know, English literature. And this is what I was studying a lot. Yeah. And I went down and this Jesuit uh, counselor was saying, well, here's how you can finish your degree. And I went to a state school too. And, you know, Gonzaga was like six times the money on the discount for mature students. (laughs) But the quality of service just blew me away. And I just said, oh, I got to go here. But as he was talking, he said, you know, we've got this new program, this master's in organizational leadership you might want to think about when you finish your bachelor's. And as he said that, this booming voice in my head said, do that. Oh, wow. Really, it was just one of those moments of kind of divine intervention and guidance. It hit you. It hit me. And so I signed up for that master's in organizational leadership, had some wonderful mentors at Gonzaga, got exposed to a lot of people, finished my master's degree and, you know, was kind of hooked on student loans and suddenly realized I better do a PhD to keep extending the student loans. And so I ended up spending eight years there. Wow, that's a lot of commuting, Jonathan. Did you eventually move to Spokane or are you commuting this whole time? I commuted every week for eight years, 
about a three and a half hour drive in the winter time. Sometimes it was pretty hairy going through the mountains. And wow! And so you know Uncle Stafford very well then, Uncle Stafford Lone. Yes, <laughs> I maxed out on them. <laughs> I think at the current rate, I'll be done paying when I'm eighty-four. <laughs> I know Uncle Stafford pretty well. We have a we have a relationship for a few more years as well. Yeah. Well, that's great. So, where did it hit you to really explore this whole area of integral leadership and integral studies? Yeah. Well, I think it was trying to find avenues in the world that resonated and connected with what I'd gotten. So, I took up spiritual practice when I was nineteen. And when I went back to university at 31, I thought, I want something to make a bridge into the world. I'm tired of being a carpenter, dump truck driver, snowplow truck driver, doing whatever, and getting a master's degree. And somehow I wanted to kind of bring more integration into my life. So I was looking for ways. And so when I got into the leadership program, I was explicitly saying, how can I talk about consciousness, which was this loose, fluffy term and, you know, lots of ways of talking about it casually and informally and new age and this and that. But I remember, for instance, coming across a postcard for the Tucson Towards a Science of Consciousness conference. And I got on their listserv and started engaging people and met some really cool people and got to a couple of conferences. Okay, so there's something serious here. Yeah. So when I got into my PhD program, and I started at Gonzaga in 98 in the PhD program, was about the same time that I was getting connected to some people in the Bay Area and others who were in kind of Ken Wilber's integral circles. Yeah. And there, I think I read a Journal of Consciousness article of his from 96, then a couple of other things in integral psychology in 2000. Okay, here's a place where there's not only a clear understanding of consciousness, but how it shows up in the world. You know, the simple four quadrant map where there's the interior subjective world, but there's also the external behavior of individuals. But then there's the collective interior of how does culture shape how we show up as individuals. But there's also external systems, institutions, uh, rewards, all those kind of things. So all of this helped me see that, okay, there's more to it than just consciousness. There's interdependencies between these things. And nobody's really talking about this in terms of leadership very much. There were people talking about spirituality. I saw in hindsight, there were people talking about adult development, people like Carl Kunert or Bill Torbert, who I met around that time. And those were kind of my ways into that. Well, and so then what are the next steps? Where does it go from there? Yeah. So, you're- so then I want to say you know, all these serendipities. I was looking to do my dissertation and how do I bring these things together? And I wanted to do uh, a little course. I wanted to build a course around this kind of stuff and try it out. And so, of course, the only place I could find to get people interested was in the Bay Area. Hmm. And I was, you know, meeting here and there with people. And I went to the... Uh, chaotic alliance offices okay and was talking with the guy there and we got to saying yeah this conscious the problem for them with how to lead chaotic organizations required a different level of consciousness than they were encountering so how do you develop and cultivate that yeah so he put me in touch with a bunch of people one of whom had started a listserv called integral leadership and organizational development 
And so I was on discussing with Suzanne Cook-Greuter and Bill Torbert and Don Beck and Jenny Wade and all these kind of people Yep, being this naive newbie from the middle of nowhere in Canada. <laughs> and one of the people there invited me to be on the board of an organization that they were founding as an alternative to Ken Wilber's Integral Institute. Because okay. one of the things that a number of people saw was the kind of personality-centric nature of that organization had some limitations to it eventually. And so they thought, well, can we do this another way? So I was involved in those conversations. And one of the people said, you know, if we're going to do all this kind of work, we should have a journal to publish what we do. And so that was the founding of Integral Review. And I yeah. got volunteered for the committee. And the German guy, Reinhard Fuhrer, who um, suggested it, needed an English-speaking co-editor so everybody else took one step back, and there I was. Now, Jonathan, was Russ Volkman involved in this at this point? So Russ was one of the co-founders in that group, yes. Okay. The article I wrote in the first issue on what's integral about leadership was originally going to be a co-production with Russ, and we talked and we talked, and, and oh, I did he have so much stuff he could pack in there. And at some point I said, I can't deal with it all, Russ. I got to do a simple introductory article. <laughs> well, I, I just remember meeting him at ILA conferences. Yeah. And we didn't really even ever speak all that much, but he was always kind of wandering around and we always had this really nice kind of pleasant conversation. And, and then we'd kind of part ways, but Oh, that's great. That's great. So you were on the ground floor, floor of the founding of that journal. Now, yep. so bring people into some of the, let's go with just two or three introductory concepts as people think about integral leadership. So I think the one that has been foremost in my thinking and work is really this developmental notion that we mature as we grow older and that the structures or forms or ways you can characterize that maturity don't stop just because our bodies stop growing, yeah. but that they can go on. And that that has a big impact because basically what leaders are doing or what individuals are doing that affects their leadership is they're kind of having a greater span of width of what they can take a perspective on and the degree to which they can coordinate them. So for instance, instead of looking at linear causality, well, we'll have to figure out who's to blame. Yeah, People can start to see that there's multiple considerations, multiple influences, systemic ways of looking at things. And that's the kind of developmental maturity. So that has been kind of one of the core elements of integral leadership because it really affects the kind of inner workings. Yeah. I also find, though, that, you know, the Jesuit motto of head, heart and hands, the integration of intellect with the heart or spirit with the action in the world of uh, service or whatever is a really key component as well, that it's not just intellectual, it's not just behavioral, it's all of these and more needing to be accounted for and attended to. Yeah. And if they're not in concert? Well, a simple example. We had yeah. an article we published, so 10 years, almost 10 years ago now in Norway, 
there was a kind of the biggest national tragedy, you could say. There was this guy, Anders Breivik, set off a bomb in the parliament buildings in Oslo and then went out to an island where these young liberal youth were having a retreat, yep. took a machine gun and gunned down 77 kids. Yeah. And in Norway, four and a half, five million people, everybody knew somebody who knew somebody who was killed. Very traumatic nationally. Now, some people analyzed his writing and his mentor's writing said, this person was actually very complex in their thinking. Yeah. But the ethical foundation of what they were thinking about, what they were trying to justify, and this is this, as Wilbur talked about, lagging lines of development. Mm. So the notion or Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences. Yeah. The fact that we have different domains that we show up in. And if you're so narrow down one area to, that you totally neglect others. You neglect, you've seen people who are super bright, but neglect the relational. Yep. So I use Sheldon in Big Bang Theory as an example of this kind of thing, right? Yeah. Super intellectual, but social skills are a little lacking. <laughs> so, so that whole concept of the importance of moral, ethical skills, relational skills, all of these are necessary for leadership. And it's not just enough to know the right thing or have the drive to do things so yeah well and and if some of those to to your point if that ethical domain is not if that that shop isn't in order uh that can be incredibly tragic yeah as you, as yeah. you highlighted yeah well so what are you seeing in your in your role as editor of the integral review you have a, a bird's eye view on this space. And I think that's a wonderful perspective. So what are you seeing? What are some themes you're noticing in some of the current submissions? And then what are some of the opportunities that you see? And if we could kind of slant this a little bit towards leadership, that's great. We don't have to. But what are some of the themes you're seeing of what's coming in? And then what are some opportunities you see, maybe even some gaps that people could be considering as spaces that are ripe for investigation? Yeah. Well, first of all, we would encourage people to think about submitting. This is part of our, our biggest challenge is getting sufficient quality submissions. We're a bit picky, you know, that's true. But we're very friendly with authors who, and we work with authors often for a long time to, who, to and give feedback in multiple iterations to if, we, if people have a good idea or a good way of thinking about something and just need some help kind of developing it to a more robust way. We're glad to do that. I would say one of the things that I've seen is that there's almost a generational shift from the early things, like when I first wrote, it was mostly about Ken Wilber's notion of integral. Yeah. But now there is much broader and more ways of understanding how other thinkers have moved to this kind of metasystematic, kind of more complex ways of thinking. There are other models. There's way more ways of approaching things in an integral way, just using the, the term in a generic way rather than specifically related to Wilbur. And I think that has opened up the possible ways that we can look at this. And in terms of leadership, I've seen some things that I, a friend of mine would call proto-integral. You see people who are starting to put more pieces together, oh. right? That they're going in their journey, you know, their maturity and development, they encounter the limitations of certain models that they have come across or worked with in practice. 
and they start to see the need to include another dimension and they start putting those together and then you start to see it blossoming out. Um, yeah. And that there are better models for understanding things like change processes. So some of Thomas Jordan, uh, a friend of mine here in Sweden and one of the other founders of the journal has done a lot of research developmentally thinking about how do people out in practice have theories of change models and how are they informed by development without using those words or terms, but how do we see it happening in the world? So there's a more open-minded rather than jargon-driven way of looking at it. Nice. Talk to me about opportunities that you see. What are some, what are some gaps or some missing components that you would like to see people explore? And, and real quick, before you answer that, I love the developmental perspective that you have just shared, that, that you all are willing to work with authors, help them develop their ideas, because I think at times that world can be incredibly cold. You have reviewer number two, who's always a little too harsh, <laughs> mean-spirited. You feel, you feel bad about yourself after reading their 77 pieces of feedback. I guess it's the, the diplomat in me that has, and, and through this role, having to collate reviewer feedback and pass it on to people, tried to see how can this be useful? I mean, we want to be helpful to people. We don't want to be just, you know, mean. And we're not so, how would I say, inundated with things that we can just kind of put a filter and push people away. Yeah. Although it's not that there's, there are times when we get things that are just not in scope and not up to yeah. snuff and we just have to say, find somewhere else. And But the things that I think would be most interesting are these very grounded practical ways in which you could see things that are going on that you think somehow that works. Why does it work? What is enabling leaders to develop here? And how can these theories help us be more granular and comprehensive about mm. understanding what's going on so that we can then, you know, create these kind of agile learning loops to to constantly feed back because whatever's good enough now is not going to be good enough in five years. Oh, yeah. What would be an example of that? What's the closest thing you can think of that comes to that that you've come across? I love the question because it's, it's a fun, fun puzzle. It's a tough question. So I'm co-supervisor on a PhD in Australia right now. And one of the things this person did was they kind of have, this is someone who is from South Africa, has met and worked with Nelson Mandela, has global clients and tried to then bring the kind of academic credibility to her work. And of course, there's a big learning curve in trying to up the game there. But the practical example, the on the ground experience is there. But in the process of having to kind of look at the literature and see okay, what happened from when David Day wrote this and how did that evolve and how have people tried to build integrative models and what else needs to be integrated? Yeah. And seeing that work go on and get to support and help with that is super interesting. Now, taking that into case studies and saying, if we build a model and we try to run people through this, can it do something useful? So the more kind of experimentation 
not having to be comprehensive, but say, here's what we think could be an improvement based on where we're at. Yeah. And how do you have the meta process of what is guiding our learning? What is informing it? What do we learn from reflecting on it afterwards? Jonathan, I, I'm jumping this question on you. So take a moment if you need to. Let's say you wanted to, let's say you have a person standing in front of you and they said, I need to be, I need to be developed. You need to develop me in my leadership abilities, knowledge, skills, abilities, uh, mindsets, however we want to think about it. What are a few pieces of that puzzle? What, what pieces would you put into place as starting points? Well, I'm excited to hear this. <laughs> Uh, well, you'll we'll see if you're still excited. Finish. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind with a situation like that is you listen carefully and ask a lot of questions of the person. Okay, good. You, you really have to figure out what do they already know. Where where are what is kind of implicit or tacit knowledge for them already that they maybe just haven't understood that they know or possibly have some socialized influences that need to be taken out and polished up and upgraded. Yeah. But grounding it in their existing life world to me Ah. is the first thing. I love it. I love it. And from there you have to depend on, you know, having in your back pocket, so to speak, a broad range of models or ideas. So how, how we got in touch through this Prometheus project where there's a, a meta model framework to say, how can somebody find themselves within all the constellation of things that are necessary for leading and developing yourself as a leader? And how yeah. can you learn to navigate in that? You need that in the back pocket but you're not going to overwhelm a person with a meta model like this. That's not going to be helpful, <laughs> except for us theory geeks. <laughs> that would be a little overwhelming, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I think there's this big role for coaches, facilitators, teachers to be the kind of moderator or mediator of this you know, growing rich body of integral and integrative models. Yeah. And understanding what are the immediate needs and the growth edges. And I think the other thing that I really, I like from Carl Kunert and Keith Eigel's book, uh, The Map, is you know this notion of life. Well, my teacher says this, life will teach you better. The, the challenges that we need to grow from are always being presented to us. So mm-hmm. the question is, can we lean into the challenges and as Keegan and Leahy say, you know, these are not challenges for us to solve, but challenges that can solve us. Say more about that. Well, I think this goes back to the the kind of four quadrants of the integral world in a way. So we often have a view of, you know, us acting on the world. And we, we often neglect the way the world acts on us. Mm. We, we internalize it, it becomes normative. We, we socialize with people who think alike and look alike and so on. And so that's just the way the world is. And we don't notice how much we're shaped by it and yeah. informed. At the same time, and this is where, you know, one of my big influences with David Bohm 
you know, and he starts out this thought as a system book and says, well, the reason we have problems in the world is because we had other problems previously and then we thought about them. And now we have <laughs> new problems. And the source of those problems is simply the incoherence of the thinking process. Yeah. Or the limitations of it. So if you think of adult development and maturity models in that way, what they're all saying is there's something about how we shape structure and construct meaning internally that as it expands, as the the depth and breadth uh, of it expand in the world, we're able to handle more things and so on. So how does that process happen? It happens by failure. We encounter the limits of the mental models and meaning making that we have by creating problems in the world and they, the world feeds them back to us. <laughs> you know, karma works very nicely. And or as um, I use the Arbinger work a lot, you know, the notion of collusion, you know, we teach people how to treat us or as my friend in Oslo says, you know, we have unintended collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> And the thing is, if you can help people reframe that and, and recognize that the challenges, the breakdowns, the, the frustrations that come to us are simply life mirroring back to us the limits of our own beingness in the world. Yeah. You say, what, what is it offering us as feedback that we can say, what have we been on autopilot about habituated, internalized, and in an unquestioned way acted on that's producing incoherence in the way our world's going. Yeah. And if we see that this, the first you know, regime change begins at home. So if we can start changing ourselves, then we can make some progress. I love it. Last question. Well, second to last question. Observations on the shift and the transition to Scandinavia. Grew up in North America, Moscow, Idaho. We've talked about Moscow before. I love the Palouse. It's one of my favorite places in North America. Love Vancouver. And then you make the the shift to Scandinavia. Yeah. 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 There was definitely some culture shock. I mean, being in Canada is helpful because, you know, Canadians often define their cultural identity as not American. Yeah. Even though there is you know, a large influence that you, that can't be held, but it is more socially oriented. So, you know, instead of the melting pot, it's the cultural mosaic. Yep. The good of the whole and the group is often foregrounded to the rights of the individual. Yep. Coming to Norway, it's more of that. Okay. So one of the things that I encountered, a couple things that shocked me when I first got here. So, you know, you have to go go in lineups and do all these things. One, very technically advanced. Checks don't exist, haven't for decades. Everything's electronic banking forever. Yeah. So, I, But I'm going down to the tax office to get registered and all this, and I found out, well, they print these books every year where everybody's pub- public record of everybody's tax return is open and available. Wow. It's a very high trust society, and it's a very one where everybody kind of looks after everybody else in certain ways. And of course, that can lead to nosiness and so on. But (laughs) but privacy of information is not a big thing. So the other way I encountered this was going to the auto parts store. You know, I'm kind of poverty driven mechanic of old cars. 
And so I'm looking for some parts for my car and I give them the make and model and all these details. And no, no, give me your license plate number. What do you mean? That's my information. No, no, just give me your license plate number. And boom, it's in the system. They have the part. Oh, wow. So it's a very high trust society in that sense that people trust government. They trust them with their information. And that, of course, enables a lot of social kind of relational grease so that things can flow smoothly. Yeah. Some one of the engineering companies we did some leadership development work for here, they were responsible for microchips that ran touch screens on eight out of 10 smartphones. Okay. And their engineers were good. And you see this and they, they had offices in other places in the world, but they said, you know, you got to hire a lot of those engineers to make up for one good Norwegian engineer. And, and it's not that the Norwegians are so clever, but they have these other layers of maturity and other skill sets around because they've been in a society that scaffolded and supported a kind of growth and development. Wow. A couple of friends of mine wrote a book called The Nordic Secret, yeah, which basically said that why has Scandinavian society been so successful? And their premise is that it's not economic, it's not resource, it's not this and that. North Sea oil has helped in Norway, no doubt. But essentially, they said it was how enlightenment ideas, which were essentially ego development ideas, going from self-centered to being more socially aware and being a good citizen, to yep. eventually branching out on your own, being self-authored, thinking for yourself. And Goethe and Schiller and people like this took these ideas. People fed this into the notion of Bildung, which is doesn't translate well in English, but it's kind of whole person formation. Yeah, yeah. Would it, would it almost be like uh, the Jesuits, the Cura Personalis? Yeah, a little bit, I think. I okay. think. But it, it, it's not kind of education, although it gets translated as that sometime. Okay. But what happened was it got brought into Denmark, who in the 1860s are saying, we've got a democracy now, and we've got a bunch of peasants out in the mud. How do we get people to participate in a meaningful way in society? And they created what they called folk high schools, which allowed 18, 19-year-old kids to go and spend six months and get basically not only the latest farming techniques, but things to help them associate and identify with a nation state, which is a new concept. Wow. So it expanded the breadth of their consciousness. Also the maturity into being a citizen rather than just an individual, going from a kind of egocentric to a socialized mind, and then eventually into thinking for yourself. So there's a lot of kind of individuation in Scandinavian society, driven by 60 years of up to 20% of the population going through these folk high schools. Yeah. And it informs Swedish politics, Norwegian formal education. So these developmental ideas in a different form and name were part of the upbringing of the culture that enabled generations to grow up and have a greater kind of maturity. Now, mm -hmm. at the same time, one of the things I observed when I came here was that these kind of higher order values informed the governance and the constitutions and these kind of things. But people tend to follow them as rules. It's just the cultural norms. And they don't always kind of mature to kind of author those themselves. They're just the norms of the society. Okay. So it's a really interesting mix of 
a lot of support for growth and development and individuation, but a lot of don't think you're anybody and tall poppy syndrome kind of stuff. Yep. A lot of conflict avoidance, um, really interesting mix, but it's certainly a rich ground. I mean, you, you guys in America are jealous. I mean, I got a position here. It was full tenure to start with, 50% research, full-time teaching load of 54 contact hours a semester. Wow. They support education and tuition for a student is about $100 a semester. <laughs> well, Scandinavia is always at the top of what? Happiness, education, yep. fitness, yep. every, right. like literally every metric. And yep. so it's, it's fun to hear your perspective on that question because you do wonder what's in the sauce and what's, what's happening there that facilitates those results. and. Okay, Jonathan, so we're going to wind down here, sir. Actually, I had two more questions. One, if you were to point listeners who want to be readers to to a couple sources to help them become more familiar with integral leadership, I will put some of links to some of your articles in the show notes. Are there a couple of seminal resources that you think listeners would like to know about? I mean, I have an anthology that I edited, but I don't know if that's a good starting point. You know, I think one of the things that I would maybe make a comment about, perspective or comment, and I think it comes from being both in academia and editing an academic journal, is that there are a lot of consulting companies, consultancy brands, things going on that are using the integral kind of ideas and labels. Frederick Leloux's teal organizations and these kind of things. I mean, it's it's using those ideas and it's not that they aren't good. And I, I've met him and heard him present. It it's resonates very strongly. But the developmental challenges of getting people to enact that are much more complex okay. than are often presented. So what often happens, I, I had to present this kind of developmental leadership uh, for some people at Lund University last year, just after Dave Snowden talked. I don't know if okay. people know Dave Snowden, but... He's been on the podcast, yep, yep. Yeah, really brilliant, brilliant guy. We did some work with him, but he made a comment to somebody's question about developmental theories of leadership, and he just kind of poo-pooed the whole thing suddenly. And that was yeah. what I was supposed to talk about coming on after him. But I anticipated this, and and he's right about his comment that it is not an easy field, whether developmental or integral or all of these. It really takes a long time to integrate and internalize, and it's it's not a weekend seminar and you get some buzzwords. And I think there are many things out there that utilize to varying degrees these models and sometimes can do as much harm as good. Okay. Because they're trying to, for instance, push vertical development fast. You know, you've got to grow up. You've got to be a more, you know, natural development happens in certain ways and maturity happens in certain ways and it doesn't happen overnight. It can be accelerated, but it's a lot more sophisticated and complex than most of us understand yet. And so- In terms of articles or th- research that people can do, it's really how do we get more grounded 
more realistic rather than idealistic and uh, espouse values and things around those kind of things. So, and I guess I said that in response to your question, because I think there are lots of resources out there in companies. If you Google stuff, they will have good summaries. So Nick Petrie did a good white paper for the Center for Creative Leadership six, seven years ago. Okay. It's a good white paper. It's a good introduction. Yep. And at the same time, you recognize that when you get further and deeper into that journey, there's a lot still to learn here. And it's not as easy as it looks at first. It's very inspiring, but a lot harder to put into practice. And there's a lot of conflation of the map with the territory then. People read the stuff and they the term I've learned lately, they downward assimilate the language. You take more complex concepts that have a lot of work behind the chunking to get to what that really means to an act. You grab it out of some discourse and you start sprinkling it liberally, but you don't really, you haven't done the work to kind of internalize that yet. Yeah. And we all do it when we're learning new things. It's, it's not a bad thing, but to mistake it for the thing itself is one of the big challenges, I think. Yeah. That's well said. That's very, very well said. Oh, I didn't really give you any good, <laughs> easy, simple resources. I don't even think that first article I wrote is very good anymore. I look back and it's okay, but yeah. So I do have some things on my website, some YouTube videos from talks I've given trying to introduce this. So awesome. Sweden is doing some really interesting stuff to try to make adult development mainstream, like gender equity and sustainability to get it into the discourse and they're making good progress. So I've done a couple of talks that I have links to on my website that are maybe good introductions to some of these things. Great. Last question. The last three concerts you've been to. We started with your first few concerts. It's been, I know it's been over a year since you've been to a concert. Yeah. But, it's uh, been a long time since I got out here. <laughs> What did I see? Uh, no, well, I it was a, a golden oldies kind of thing. So Trondheim is getting on the trail more. It's, you know, a town of a couple hundred thousand. But um, almost two years ago in the kind of university city festival thing, I got to see Robert Plant. Oh, nice. That was really nice. Yeah. He really puts on. And, and it was nice. You just walk up to like a meter from the stage, you know, right when he started. So that was good. What else did we saw? Peter Gabriel in London at the O2 Arena. That, that would have been wonderful. Uh, yeah, the um, tour where he did the whole Soul album in black and white and then did some stuff in color. It was, yeah, the 25th anniversary of that coming out. What else did we see? What was something? Oh, we saw Lenny Kravitz in London. Nice. And, oh, you know, there's... Something, there's a friend of mine who was a, in a doctoral class I taught who knows him because she was a writer for the Jeffersons and oh, his wow. mother was an actress on there. Yeah, yeah. But he had a way of connect, heartfelt connection with the audience. Wow. And you could just feel that vibe. So we saw him in Oslo more recently, actually. And he did this thing where he disappeared off the stage, you know. And then suddenly he appeared again. And there's a video of this. And he comes down in and he's in the middle of the balcony seats. And he comes over to where all the people in wheelchairs are and stops and visits with everybody. And 
doing let love rule or something like this, you know, <laughs> so you, you could really feel the, the, the quality of love and energy. And so that yeah. was nice. So those are the last three that I can think of. One of my favorite albums is Mama Said. That's a good, that's a very, very good album. Yeah. So, uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time this evening for you, sir. Yeah. Very, very much appreciate it. And uh, I will put all kinds of information in the show notes so all of our listeners can find out more about you and your good work. And thank you, sir. Be well. I hope to see you in Switzerland this fall. That's my that, goal. That is my, one of my goals, too, to meet in person. Uh, we haven't crossed paths at ILA somehow, but I want to thank you for inviting me. It's always a blast to talk and answer questions. And yeah. Oh, well, I appreciate it. I owe you a pint. Good. <laughs> okay. Be well. Be well. According to a portion of the definition of integral, integral is composed of constituent parts or lacking nothing essential. I have great respect for this branch of thinking because these are individuals trying to ensure that we have all of the necessary parts as a part of the conversation. Like some of the other conversations around complexity and systems and any number of other spaces kind of in that realm, I have a lot of learning to do. I just do. I, I don't, I have not read enough in that space, but it makes perfect sense to me. And I'm excited to explore that work in greater depth. So I think Jonathan and many of the people that he named throughout that episode, I'm most familiar with the work of Keegan and Leahy, who are just incredible thinkers. And I'm excited to jump into some of the resources that Jonathan shared. I'm excited to explore the integral review in ways that I haven't done so in the past, so that I can become more aware and knowledgeable in this space. The practical wisdom for me, none of us are finished products. There's always more to learn and there's always more to integrate into our understanding of the concept of leadership. Have a great day, everybody. I hope you are enjoying this series with our different editors. It's just been a lot of fun to have these conversations and re-listen to these conversations because I'm always hearing something new. Take care. Be well. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phronesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phronesis. If you like Phrenesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, Captovation Podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now, Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.